Welcome to another episode of Making Disciples and this is my Christmas podcast, uh, discipleship podcast for you. Um, we're going light on the podcast now until January to get through to the new year where we can launch back with a second series. Uh, we've got some exciting podcasts to come. And today's podcast is on the Christmas story because I would argue that we have been lied to uh, about where Jesus was born, how he was born, how it came about, and what we have in our imaginations about the Christmas story is not actually from the Bible. So this podcast is looking at the Christmas story as the Bible tells it, as a Jewish story with a Jewish girl. Uh, So I know some of you really enjoy this kind of context stuff and this Jewish background stuff. This is the podcast where we talk about the Christian faith in such simple, clear terms. So we're going to talk about the Christmas story, what it really means uh, and where it was really based and try and get our head around what does this actually mean for us today. So friends, welcome to Making Disciples. My name is Chris Rogers and I'm excited to share Christmas with you today. So the Christmas story, the story as we know it goes something like this. An angel appears to Mary. Mary is told that she is pregnant with a child. At the same time, she's betrothed to marry a man called Joseph. Uh, Joseph uh, is a lovely guy who somehow not too long after the birth of Christ seems to, after the maybe 13th birthday, disappear. But his Joseph And Joseph comes from uh, a family that originally originates from Bethlehem and Caesar makes a decree that everybody has to go to their hometown. So Joseph heads to his hometown where he knows nobody and ends up going around knocking on doors of inns, knocking on the B&Bs to find somewhere to stay. They eventually find somebody that will let them stay in the, uh, the barn out back. And while they're arriving, Mary gives birth on that night that they arrive. She gives birth to baby Jesus. She wraps him in the cloths that they've got in the barn and they place him in the feeding trough. And the shepherds appear and the wise men appear. All that God has kind of brought them together for this holy night moment. And and Christmas night ends with baby Jesus in a crib. Mary and Joseph stood around him with the animals, with some shepherds and some wise men, the Magi, and that is the the nativity Christmas scene. Friends, that is not what the Bible tells us. Now, that scene comes from the school play, the nativity. So when you were growing up and children now are growing up, act out the nativity. But the nativity story actually doesn't have that many characters. But if you've got a class of 25 children and you need to get them all Uh, into a part you might need to start to create more parts 
And you might need to start to bring these things together. For example, we are told that the Magi arrived when Jesus was still a little child. He actually didn't. They didn't come on the night of his birth. The Bible doesn't say that. It says that he uh, they came when he was a toddler. So that's some time later. Uh, so what, what the Nativity School Nativity did was it gathered in the whole plot, the story, and squeezed it into one day so that all the children could have a part. They created parts like the innkeeper. Uh, the innkeeper is not in the Bible. Joseph doesn't go around knocking on doors, looking for somewhere to stay. Doesn't eventually do, you know, it was three, you know, it wasn't just he knocked on one door, often he knocks on three doors and it's the third innkeeper who says, yes, you can stay here. So they created as many parts as possible and I suppose tried to give it a little bit more of a plot. And by, by doing this, they were able to create more parts for more children to be in the story. So we end up with the version of the Christmas story that we have with this beautiful scene with a stable with the Christ child in the middle, Mary and Joseph either side, shepherds one side, kings on the other. That scene that we now have on Christmas cards doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from the children's Christmas play that was based on the Bible, but was created to make sure every child had a part and the story was nice and condensed. So we have this idea of the Christmas story. And then what we do is we play into that because it's such a story, a part of all of our uh, kind of Christian heritage from school. We play into it and then we validate it and we continue it rather than breaking this cycle and saying, well, actually, what does the Bible actually say? So, friends, what I'd like to do is just hop into what the Bible actually says by particularly focusing today on Luke chapter two and saying, what does the Bible tell us actually happened? And it, it's so short. The Bible actually isn't interested highly in the birth of Jesus. It's more interested in the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Uh, so we don't get a great deal. And what we do get is there to really nudge, nudge, wink, wink to show that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies that are found in the Old Testament. So let me just read this to you. So this is from Luke chapter two. I'm going to read from verses one just through to verse seven. So it's not very long. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken for the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Cuquilius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem the town of David, because he belongs to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available in the inn. Some translations say there she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, which actually uh, is a technical term, which we'll look at in a, in a little while, swaddling clothes. Uh, but it just simply, in my translation, just says clothes there, but swaddling is, is much better. And many translations would just say uh, swaddling clothes. So let's just look at this story for a moment. It's a very simple story in the Bible telling. Tradition... So if schools taught us the nativity happened in a stable out back 
of an inn, tradition would tell us that actually Jesus was born in probably more like a cave. So if you watch the nativity uh, film that came out a number of years ago, uh, Jesus in that film is born in a cave because tradition would say it's more likely to be a cave. Friends, I want to make an argument today that neither the cave or the stable are correct or historically correct. They, in my mind, would never work in a Jewish community. Those ideas only work from a Western world that doesn't understand the Eastern world. In an Eastern world, family, 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 family come first. Like, if you're a part of a family, it doesn't matter how extended that family is, you are part of something. And because you're a part of something, it doesn't matter if you are great aunt so-and-so's distant cousin. If you are in the family, then you're in the family and you watch out for each other. So this thought that, that Joseph has to go back to Bethlehem uh, for this census, but there is no one there he knows well enough to knock on their door is preposterous. Because when a census was being taken, to go back to your, your heritage, there had to be at least two generations that had lived there, which means your family have made an impact into that community. And the thought that the entire family have now relocated somewhere else, and there is no one left, is a crazy idea. Joseph would have had somebody, if it wasn't anyone to do with his mum and dad, it would be a great aunt, a great uncle. There would be someone there that he would have some relationship to that he could knock on the door. So the thought for me that Joseph ends up in a cave or ends up in the barn out back makes no sense to a Jewish community. It was all about family and making sure that the family um, gathered in the family. That That's the whole point of, of a Jewish family. It's about, come on, be a part of this, get in here. This is why the kingdom of God is inviting all of us into a kingdom family because the mindset of family is so strong so in Luke chapter 2 Jesus is born I would argue into a family home and he's not actually abandoned at all because the census would imply that this was his family town and that he's having to go there because there's been at least two generations harking back there so he's going to go back to it because that's where his family are from that's where his family are so for me, it makes more sense that Joseph is going back to a family in Bethlehem. So then we say, well, actually, what does the Bible actually say? So in verse six, it says here that while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. The nativity play is often Mary and Joseph arrive on a donkey. I hope you've noticed there's no donkey in this either. Mary and Joseph arrive on a donkey and it's like the very night they arrive, Mary is giving birth. But actually the Greek here, while they were there, the Greek implies that they have been there some time. And in that period of time that they are there, Mary is now about to give birth. So they're a part of this community. They've been there some time. So while they were there, I believe they've been there for a period of time. And that this was not knocking on innkeepers' doors, but they were a part of the community that was there. 
So for me, this then starts to paint a slightly different picture. It wasn't desperation that leads them to the outhouse out back or to a cave, but actually they've been here for a little while and they're a part of something. So let's just read verse seven. While they were there, it says time came for the baby to be born. And then verse seven, she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and places him in a manger because there was no room in the, we all want to say guest room or inn, um, available to them. Actually, my translation of the Bible here says guest room. Now, I just want to unpack for you uh, for a moment what a guest room and uh, the, the word that we actually have here uh, in, in the original Greek is the word katalumai. There was no room in the Ketalumai. And I think for us to understand uh, Ketalumai, we have to just jump backwards and forwards to two of the stories and a couple of the places. Let me explain how a Jewish family home works first. So a typical Jewish family home in Bethlehem at that time was a two-story home with a flat roof up top. You would walk into a courtyard uh, the, the, the the ground floor was where the animals were. You'd find the chickens, you'd find maybe a, a goat in there. You might, if you were particularly wealthy, you might have a cow to produce you milk. Uh, so you would have your animals in that lower level. That was really important, particularly because in winter, it was cold. It was hot during the day, but cold at night. So you would bring your animals into this courtyard and into this lower level of the house where the animals were. And the animals would poo, they would produce heat, they would produce warmth. And you would sleep then on the second floor upstairs. And the, the, the jump between the first and the second floor would either have some form of ladder or some form of stairs to get you from one to the other. The family then would live on that second floor, this upper level space, where there would be a catalumai. A catalumai was a room on that second floor, which was the guest room. It was the, the room that you had to take family. Sometimes that catalumai was up on the roof and you would have a wall around the roof where people could sleep up top. So the catalumai was the guest space that family visitors could stay in. And what they would do is you'd walk into this courtyard and that's where your cooker would be because you would use the fuel, you'd use the waste from your animals because you would take that, you would mix that into wood and, and other things and you would burn uh, the goat's waste, the poo, uh, as it is your, kind of your cooking fuel. So you would cook downstairs and then you would sleep upstairs and you'd, you'd, you'd relax upstairs and then you would have the rooftop as well. And in that upper complex, you would just have this catalumai. Now, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells the disciples, 22 verse 11, he says to his disciples, it's Passover. I want you to go off and I want you to uh, find this guest house to prepare for Passover and guest room and he uses the word catalumai and the room that Jesus has got booked is is a room in a property and uh, Jesus says I want you to go 
and find the katalumai, the guest room, and prepare for a Passover. So Jesus uses that phrase there, and and it's a room where uh, Jesus' disciples are going to have the meal. Now, interestingly, in the Good Samaritan story, do you remember that one? The Good Samaritan comes and he takes the man who's been injured, he bandages him up, and it says he takes him off uh, to an inn. And actually, the Greek word in that story is the word pandochion, and it literally translates as B&B. So if Joseph and Mary were knocking on doors, looking for somewhere to stay, actually the Greek had a word that was perfect for that, and it was the pandosion, the inn or the B&B. So the Good Samaritan takes the man to the B&B, to the inn, and pays the innkeeper money to care for the guy. Actually, in the Christmas story, they don't use that word. They use this word katalumai, which means this upper guest room or the, this room that could be prepared for special uh, gatherings and, and meetings. So I would argue, friends, that Mary and Joseph do not stay in an outhouse. They don't stay in the outside barn. They don't stay in a cave. I want to argue that they stay in a family home, in a family unit where there's an upper room, this guest room. But when they've got there, we're told that there's no room in the guest room. Well, why? The census is happening. They've probably put the elderly relatives or they've put somebody else in that upper room. Another thought is, well, if Mary's heavily pregnant and the stairs in that property to that second floor are not great, actually the lower animal area may be a better place for them to stay anyway because it's easier for her to get to. So then you might start saying, well, why would they put a pregnant woman in a dirty lower area? Actually, you've got to remember that the Jewish community were very proud of their homes and they were proud of what they have. And actually, those lower rooms were not dirty. They were kept clean every day. They were swept out. So a couple of years ago, I ended up going to the refugee camps in Lebanon. And we got to go into these makeshift homes that they these refugees had made themselves. And what was so noticeable was how clean and how tidy, tidy and how house-proud they were of a home that was made of nothing but cloth. It was a tent that they'd, that they'd built. And they were very house-proud of what they had, even though they had so little. So, friends, don't think that lower level is dirty. It may well be that the lower level, yes, where the animals were kept, but it was a place that was kept clean. And it may be a place that actually was, was quite dignified. So I would argue that Mary and Joseph aren't bought, uh, don't uh, bring Jesus to a, a, to a town where they know nobody, where Jesus is born into a, a, a town that was uh, almost a lonely place for them. I believe Jesus was born into a family unit where Jesus is staying in the, the lower level. Does it change the Christmas story? No, Jesus is still born in Bethlehem. Uh, he's still born of the family of the line of King David. Uh, it just means that that poor peasant family uh, were a part of a unit of care and that they were cared for. There is no way in my mind a Jewish family would allow their pregnant girl to head somewhere where there isn't a place that they could be cared for. It's just a preposterous uh, idea. So I would love to argue that the traditional Jewish home in Bethlehem is where Mary gives birth to Jesus in the lower level where the animals were kept. 
because it was an easier place for her to get to, and that she had a caring, loving family, an extended family around her for the birth of Jesus. So that's the first bit of the story. The other bit I just want to look at is this other little bit in verse 7. It says that she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And I think there is a huge key in that phrase, swaddling, uh, swaddling clothes, that we skip past. What we hear is there was nowhere for baby Jesus. So she wraps him in some ripped cloth and she puts him in the feeding trough of the animals. I think what we've got here is a much bigger nudge, nudge, wink, wink. So let me just take you to Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Bethlehem 2,000 years ago uh, was a town, a very small town, but it was known for a particular piece of uh, worship that tied it into the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem had realised they could make more money if they sold animals for temple sacrifices, then the people selling the animals outside of the city of Jerusalem. So previous, if you wanted to make a sacrifice in the temple, you'd make your way to Jerusalem. And one of these outside villagers would sell you an animal that you would then bring into the temple as a sacrifice. But the temple realised, which actually is quite hard work. You had to bring that animal through the streets, through the hills. What happens if we sell you the animals here on site that are perfect for the sacrifice, we get the money and you get a perfect sacrifice. So what happened was the temple commissioned different people to rear and raise animals for temple worship. And Bethlehem was the place where the sheep, the lambs, were, were uh, cared for, uh, given birth to, cared for, for temple worship. So... In the temple, you needed a spotless lamb with no deformity and no damage, no scars, no cuts, no bruises, nothing. It had to be perfect. So what would happen is the shepherds in the fields every night would take their lambs and they would swaddle them. They would wrap them up from their feet all the way up to their bodies, round their heads so they could breathe. But it would swaddle them together so that those lambs couldn't harm each other. So if you had a whole load of sheep sleeping in a pen, sheep would kick each other, they would fight, they would fall out. And in that would actually become second rate lambs. They're not perfect anymore. So they would swaddle the lambs in cloth to bind them and their feet together so that they were perfect for temple sacrifice. And we are told that Mary takes the swaddling cloth and she swaddles baby Jesus and places him in a manger in Bethlehem, this, the, the town where the temple uh, lamb sacrifices came from. She swaddled Jesus like the shepherds would swaddle the lambs for temple sacrifice. As they wrapped the baby in swaddling, it's like Mary was saying, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. As Mary wraps baby Jesus in those swaddling cloths, it's like she is saying the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There's a, there's a huge Jewish nudge, nudge, wink, wink here to Jesus being the Lamb that was heading for temple sacrifice for the sin of all people. I just love that. The start 
of the Jesus story is the story of a Christ child, baby Jesus, coming to ultimately become the sacrifice for all people. So to the Christmas story is pointing us to the Easter story without us even realising that's what's going on. Jesus is swaddled like a lamb that was being bred for temple sacrifice. Friends, Jesus does not come to point the finger, but point to the love of God. Jesus comes as a baby to be swaddled for sacrifice, not to point the finger, but to point to the perfect sacrificial love of God. Jesus comes as God's grace. Jesus comes as God's sacrifice, perfect sacrifice. Jesus comes as flesh and blood to be a flesh and blood sacrifice. God's grace does not come as a wishy-washy idea. God's grace comes as a temple lamb. I love that. So the Christmas story, the Christmas story that's found in the nativity is lovely and it makes us feel good. But actually, it's not the story we find in the Bible. I think the challenge for me is how much of what we believe about our faith is found in storytelling or found in myth rather than found in what the Bible says. The Bible needs to be the place where we find the stories. We can't just think we know them and allow ourselves to retell them because we will twist them. We will change them. We'll add things in without us even realising it. You know, there is no donkey in the Christmas story. It's been added in. But when you say to people, how did Mary get to Bethlehem? They say, by donkey. How do you know that? Well, it's the Christmas story, isn't it? Well, no, the Bible doesn't say that. Did she go on a donkey? Well, she may well have gone on a donkey, but it's not in the Bible. So we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible actually tell us rather than what we think it tells us? So Mary, I would love to argue, was not born into a into a barn or to a cave, but she's born in, uh, Jesus is born into a family home where the catalumi, the guest room, was busy with another family member so they end up in the downstairs where the animals are, where it's warm, where baby Jesus can be born. Uh, I, and then this beautiful image of being swaddled, and this image of the shepherds swaddling the lambs for perfect temple sacrifice to keep them from harming themselves. And here's baby Jesus being swaddled in the same way as the lambs would be for the temple. I just think this is a beautiful picture that we have here. It's a beautiful Jewish picture. And we, we just need to watch that we don't westernise these Eastern stories, this Eastern history, to make it fit and become palatable for our Western minds. And I think there's a real danger that rather than being a disciple of the book, we become a disciple of the story as we're told it, in Sunday school, or the story as we're told it in the junior school. And I think that is the challenge for each of us. Can we read these stories for what they really are? Friends, I really hope that you found that interesting, looking at the Christmas story from that Jewish perspective. There's a lot more could be said just around uh, the interplay between the two kings and the interplay with the Roman Empire. The Christmas story is a story of power. Uh, there's a lot more could be said, but friends, I'm going to leave it there. I hope you find that helpful. I hope you have a blessed Christmas, 
and we look forward to seeing you in the new year with new podcast episodes for some great people coming up so we'll see you early in january for a new podcast in the new year so friends until then grace and peace have a great christmas and we'll see you soon